Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28. By the time we get through the end of the sermon, I think you're going to be seeing why Christ needs to be our all in all and uh, really the depth of his love toward us. 1 Samuel chapter 28, and I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets." Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire that we would grow as we uh, seek to understand it. We pray, Father, that you would be with us, that you would bless us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. One of the things that uh, I discovered just last year in some of my side reading was that of the 40 two attempts to assassinate uh, Hitler, that several were done by Nazi officers who weren't really Nazis. Uh, They uh, were in there, infiltrators as it were, working with the underground resistance. In fact, they supplied arms and finances and uh, all kinds of supplies and on occasion even actively helped in the attempts at overthrowing Uh, Hitler, and theirs was a really risky uh, job because uh, they had the stress, not only the dangers that they were facing, but they had the stress of attempting or at least trying to look loyal to Hitler, which turned off the very people that they were protecting. Uh, Those people thought, you're a traitor, you know, you you guys are the tyrants. And uh, so they had the stress of having the bad opinions of the very people that they're trying to protect, but then there's a a tiny few in the underground uh, that they're trying to supply all of these things with and and trying to help them. And I think they illustrate so well that appearances can sometimes be deceiving. Now, the writer of Samuel wants the readers to know that things were not quite what they appeared to be. It looked like David was on the wrong side. And uh, I'm sure that there were, well, there are today anyway, people who assume that when Achish invites David to join his army, that David and all of his men are thinking, awkward, what do we do now? This is going to be a really weird situation. We're fighting with them against, uh, against Israel. But actually, I don't think so. I think this was one of the three contingencies that David had already planned for, and there are hints Uh, in the passages, in fact, in the upcoming chapters, that David had anticipated this, and he was willing to endure misunderstanding for the sake of God's kingdom. And the first thing that I want to remind you of 
is that David's underground resistance to the Philistines and his willingness to fight against Saul in chapter 29 was very legitimate before God because he was now a civil magistrate. He was the king of Ziklag. Now, earlier David, we saw, was absolutely unwilling to raise his sword against Saul even when he had beautiful opportunities to do so. He could have finished the conflict from a pragmatic uh, perspective much, much earlier, but he absolutely refused to do so. The one exception was in chapter 23 where the magistrate of Calah had invited him to be a part of what they were doing, and he thought, this could be my base of operations. This could be the base through which... I could resist Saul. So that was the one exception, and then it didn't pan out the way he anticipated. But in chapters 24 and again in chapter 26, David proves he is not a revolutionary. Well, now in the remainder of this book and in the first chapters of 2 Samuel, he shows that with God's total approval, he's willing to fight against Saul uh, and fight against Saul's son later on, uh, in, in the book of, of 2 Samuel. And so now that he's a king, he has been freed up to engage in forms of interposition that were not at his uh, disposal. They were not an option previously. And the first stage of, inter, of his interposition was to receive a growing uh, army of defectors, give them refuge, and with his growing credibility as the king of Ziklag, to convince the nobles of Judah to crown him as king over that whole territory. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 12, and I want to explain to you what's been going on in the 16 months between chapter 27 and chapter 28. There's been a lot going on during this period of time. Uh, mainly, first of all, he's been winning the hearts of the nobles, as I've mentioned, by dialoguing with them, protecting them, sending them all kinds of... of um, plunder, I guess, that he's been getting from the Amalekites. And then secondly, he receives these huge numbers of defectors from Saul's army, which was the growing underground resistance. So let's begin reading at verse 12. First Chronicles 12, verse, no, let's begin at verse 1. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a refuge from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in the war armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left, and hurling stones and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. Now that last statement is very interesting because it indicates that Saul had lost credibility even with his own relatives. Many of them were defecting to David, and uh, uh, Saul did not know what to do. He was losing his army very, very fast. It explains part of the reason why he was fearful in our chapter. Anyway, First uh, Chronicles 12 gives a long list of captains in verses 3 through 7, and all of their troops came intact along with these captains. And I particularly like these rough and tough Gadites in verse 8. Some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor, men trained for battle, who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were as swift as gazelles on the mountains. And then uh, last week, yeah, they were probably scary guys to, <laughs> to meet up with. Well, last week we uh, read about the defection of Amasai, the prophecy of blessing on David, and what an incredible blessing that was. Uh, that's verses 16 through 18. 
Then came the men of Manasseh who defected to David right at the time that we're going to be looking at in 1 Samuel 28. And that history is recorded in verses 19 through 21. And I just want to read verses 21 through 22. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains in the army. For at that time they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. And so this was the first stage of the interposition. Remember, interposition means coming in between the citizens and the tyrant who's persecuting them. And there's many different forms of interposition. But uh, this first stage was a time of building for, for David. He was developing an underground resistance, and he'd need it, not only to defend himself potentially against the Philistines, but against the Amalekites, and also to build a, a growing resistance against the tyranny of Saul and later uh, Saul's uh, son. And uh, the rest of this chapter then shows what happened in the seven days that follow First um, Samuel 28. So just to summarize again, the first 22 verses of 1 Chronicles 12, that takes 16 months. That occurs between chapters 27 and 28. And then the last verses cover of a, a period of about a week. So let's go back to 1 Samuel 28. And we're going to see interposition stage 2 in verse 1. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Now David's plan initially involved probably letting the two armies duke it out and uh, him not being a part of that and him being able to see what God would open up in terms of his opportunities uh, after that. It probably wouldn't be as good a PR to go ahead and fight against Israel at that time but God forces him to have to do that in 2 Samuel. We'll look at that at a later time. But um, the, uh, with the huge numbers of defectors from, the Philist uh, from Saul's army, the Philistines could have easily uh, uh, beat Saul. That's probably what he's anticipating, and he thinks, okay, then I can come in and save the day and uh, clean up what the Philistines have done. So the Philistines can do the dirty work of taking down Saul. He can do the good work of um, uh, taking out the Philistines. And, and that is reading between the lines. It's not explicitly said here, but really this is exactly what happens later on in chapters uh, 31 and following into Second uh, Samuel uh, chapters 1 and 2. But anyway, his idea, I think, initially was they're going to need somebody to help them once Saul has been defeated, and hopefully I'll be that guy. And that's the way it does turn out. But the second half of verse 1 records a rather surprising uh, development. Unlike some commentators, I do not think that David was blindsided by this. I think this was one of his three contingencies. What happens here, Achish invites David to join in the battle. And it makes sense uh, because David was already a mercenary. Uh, why wouldn't he invite him? I don't think he could have been blindsided. That's exactly what mercenaries do. So let's read this. Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. He had already gained such trust with Achish because David's been telling him all of these battles against Israel he's been doing, and he's been bringing plunder day after day into Achish's coffers. And Achish thinks there is no way David could survive on his own 
The only way he can survive is by being loyal to me. He's already a stench in the nostrils of the Israelites, and so they're never going to accept him. But um, anyway, uh, David immediately agrees. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And he probably had some braggadocio, you know, body language mixed in this. Yeah, I'm up to the job. I can do this. And the way it's worded is a little bit nebulous. You can see what I can do to Saul, or you can see what I'll be able to do to you. But it's a disinformation. Now, there are legalists out there who think, oh, man, it's, it's wrong, it's sinful for countries to engage in any disinformation. And really, that is nonsense when you see the whole scope of what Scripture talks about. If the underground resistance had not engaged in disinformation to try to gain trust for some of these, these men that got into Hitler's inner circle and later tried to assassinate him, uh, they would not have been successful. Now, they had a lot of setbacks, just like David is going to be having setbacks in upcoming uh, chapters, but uh, they just kept plugging away. And in a similar way, David's disinformation looked like it would help him gain access to Achish's inner circle. Verse 2, it continues, it says, Achish said to David, Therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. And uh, to all intents and purposes, uh, it uh, looked to Achish as if this is David's only choice. He is somebody I can totally trust. He's, the only way he could survive is by being loyal to me. Now, there's a play of words in the Hebrew because my chief bodyguard means the keeper of my head. And any Jewish readers would laugh when they read this. Yeah, there's two ways you can keep your head. One is by keeping it on your body and the other is by taking it off, you know, which is what uh, David's uh, probably anticipating uh, doing. Now, I haven't spent a lot of time on this because we don't live in a time uh, like uh, Hitler's, when such resistance is even lawful. Uh, but the author of 1 Samuel has more than war strategies in mind. If I was uh, preaching during a time like that, I might say, okay, let's, let's de delve into this a little bit more. But really what the, the writer of Samuel is doing is he is describing the character of David as over against the character uh, of Saul, and he's doing it in, I think, just an incredibly brilliant way. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at that. When things get dicey and stressful like they do in this chapter, your true character issues begin to come out. What bubbles to the surface is what is really deeply rooted. And it bubbles to the surface differently in Saul than it does in David. Uh, David showed bold decisiveness, whereas Saul didn't know what to do. David shows courage. Saul shows fear. David shows faith. Uh, Saul is desperately clinging, grasping to a straw, you know, when he goes to this uh, witch in, in Endor. The Psalms make clear that this stress drove David to the Lord, whereas the stress is driving Saul to trust in things rather than to trust in the Lord God. And so let's take a look at verses 3 through 6. Verse 3 says, now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now why even mention Saul? Uh, you know, he's been dead for a long... I mean, Samuel. He's been dead for a long time. Why even bring up uh, Samuel and uh, his burial? In fact, this is a little section here. The liberals just love to poke fun at 
uh, they say, yeah, just another evidence that he's an editor who's pulled stories from diverse sources, and it's very clumsy. It's just pulled together. He didn't even edit it very well. And a conservative said, that's ridiculous. There is a reason why he brings up Samuel, and he brings up the burial. It's because Samuel, according to the conservatives, and I believe this makes perfect sense, he starts with uh, Samuel to indicate why it was that Saul put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land in the first place. It was because of Samuel's influence and because the people so highly esteemed Samuel, he had to, uh, you know, accede to, to, to their desires. Uh, so Saul started off well and gave every appearance that he would be a good king, but here is the problem. When the actions that you take are driven by the expectations of others rather than by your own character, doing it as unto the Lord, it's not going to last. It will not last uh, at all. Um, uh, you can see this with some of the children in our church. You know, when the parents are around, do perfectly well. Well, they're still, you know, they're kids. They'll be disobedient. But wow, with some kids, when the parents are not around and uh, these kids are being asked by another adult, oh, please don't put food on that computer or please don't uh, jump on the couch, you can just see these kids, well, you're not my mommy, you can't make me do that. Now, they don't say it, but boy, you can see it on their faces, you know. And what it shows to me is that it's the parents have been content with a mere outward conformity through the rod. They've not really reached the heart. And when the children are out under the influence of that rod, they don't see the rod around, then their true character begins to come out. And I really encourage you parents to put tests into your kids' lives to see if they are actually doing this as unto the Lord. How do they respond to the things you want them to respond with, even when you're not present in their lives, when your influence is missing. You see, when Samuel's influence was no longer present in Saul's life, it had zero impact. His resistance to mediums and spiritists was not a principled resistance, as the rest of the chapter makes it so clear. It was not a principled uh, opposition. What's the old expression? Um, a mule... Dressed in a tuxedo is still a mule. <laughs> uh, Samuel had given the tuxedo to Saul, and he put the tuxedo on, but when the pressure came on, his true character began to come to the surface. And by the way, if you parents want to know some of the concrete ways in which you can get your children to do it from the heart as unto the Lord, whether you're present in their lives or not, what you need to do is just keep reviewing the conference. Uh, Rodney, uh, uh, I think, did... Did the, the, the copy of the leadership conference turn out? Okay. Anyway, you can get CDs of that conference, and uh, we can get you the, the notes that go along with it. But that conference really digs in deep. How do we raise our kids to be leaders as unto the Lord? So it would be a good opportunity for you to review if you find that your children are being described by this. Okay, the second downward step can be seen when you contrast uh, verses 4 and 7. Verse 4, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. 
Now, he's the king. He's got a responsibility to fight the Philistines. In fact, he feels the real pressure to do this because if he does not win this battle, Israel's going to be cut in half by the way that the Philistines have encircled them, and he's going to lose half of his kingdom. So he has to fight, but here's the problem. He has a hard time resisting the Philistines because he's more Philistine in heart than he is an Israelite in heart. How do we know that? Because of verse 7, which we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, next week. But I do want to at least read it because it shows where he goes to find this medium. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now, the Hebrew word for um, a medium is uh, ov. It's uh, a word that indicates a person who has a familiar spirit. And this spirit speaks through the person or to the person. It's almost identical to when you go to people, well, you don't, hopefully, where people go to women who uh, conduct seances. That's almost exactly what's going on. They purport to be speaking to the dead, but it's really demons who are speaking through them. And we'll be looking at that whole occult issue next week. That's a fascinating subject. But for right now, here's the question I have. Why do those who surrounded Saul know where this medium was? Had they gone to use her? She seems like she's right on the top of their address book. They know right where she is. Uh, they don't have to go searching for her. As soon as he says, why don't you guys go search and see if you can find a medium? Well, they say, well, as a matter of fact, we happen to know where a medium is. It's a very interesting uh, uh, situation there. So Saul's heart desires a medium, and those who are finding this medium, apparently they've been using this medium as well, and so thematically, it's quite appropriate that they have to go six miles into Philistine territory, dressed up like Philistines, so that they can get her demonic wisdom in Endor. And so the writer is painting a stark contrast between David and Saul. Even though David is in a foreign land and people think he's gone, he's, he's out, he serves the true God of Israel. He longs to be in Israel. The contrast is quite uh, different with Saul. Uh, Saul lives in Israel, but he seeks guidance from the witch of Endor, a city in the hands of the Philistines, and he even dresses like a Philistine. Again, it's painting all the way through this, this section that things can sometimes be deceiving. They don't always, they're not always what they appear to be. Now that's verses 4 and 7. Now let's take a look at verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now, any of us can be afraid when we're faced uh, with danger. Uh, that's a very normal thing. But it is very difficult to fight that fear when you've got a guilty conscience and when you are far, far from God, when you are backslidden. Uh, David was able to calm his fears during this time by going to God through the Psalms. And David said during this time, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. And yet, despite the fact that he feels uh, this, this pressure from outside, uh, he casts his cares on the Lord and he finds peace and courage. Saul has completely evaporated the ability to be able to do that in his life. And fear is a terrible thing to face alone. He tries to ask God to help him. God won't answer him at all. And when you're alone, 
and you're fearful, it is demoralizing. It is discouraging. It zaps you of your energy. David's answer was to say, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Now, he didn't deny that he had fear, but his fear drove him to the Lord, and that's what faith does. When, when, when we're fearful and we have faith, we are clinging to the Lord, and when we sense His presence, it doesn't matter what is taken from us, even if it's our lives that are taken from us. Now, let me try to illustrate this. Chrysostom was a church father in the 4th and the 5th uh, centuries, and uh, he had this practice of every single day giving his life to the Lord and saying, Lord, if you want to take my life today, it's yours to take. And I give you everything that I own, my health, my memory, everything I have, he gave uh, to the Lord. Now, in AD 398, he was appointed to be the head pastor of Constantinople. They called him bishops. Rodney and Gary and I are called bishops in the scripture too. We don't have the pointy hats, but we're bishops according to the Bible. Um, so he was the bishop, a patriarch actually of Constantinople, where his zeal for reform antagonized the empress Eudoxia. She was really ticked off at his preaching because she was in this congregation and he'd just preach away, you know, at the reforms that needed to be taking place and the sins that the royalty was engaged in. So she banished him, talked the emperor, I guess, into banishing him. But it was really her. And uh, later on, he was brought back, and he continues to preach, and she banishes him again. And he's preaching against uh, what they're doing even outside of the country. And so there's even more dire consequences that are threatened against him. Now, here's what he says to her. What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness are the Lord's. Poverty I do not fear. Riches I do not sigh for. And from death I do not shrink. So he could say that because every single day he had given to the Lord his whole life and everything that he owned. He said, in effect, Lord, it's yours. If you want to take it, that's fine. Now, I love the prayer of St. Ignatius. This is a prayer I have prayed so many times uh, before the Lord. And it's, it's been a prayer that the first time I prayed it, I thought, Boy, can I pray this? What if God takes away my memory and makes me senile? What if God takes away my books? What if God takes away this and that? And I had to come to a place where I said, Lord, it is all yours. You can take it. What if he takes away my kids? What if he takes away my wife? This was a hard prayer to pray, but this has been a transforming prayer for me. Here's what he said. Take, Lord, and receive. Take all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All that I have and possess, you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. All is yours. Dispose of it wholly according to your will. Give me your love and your grace, for this is sufficient for me. If you can make that kind of a prayer the daily habit of your life, you're not going to be as fearful that things are going to be taken away from you. Why? Because every day you've been giving those things to the Lord. Lord, if you want to take them today, I give them to you. It is preventive medicine for the very fear that Saul has here. Now, Saul has done the exact opposite. What did Saul do? God told him to step down from the throne quite a few chapters ago. And he says, no, Lord, you can't have my throne. He clings to the throne. 
Now, when David gains the heart of his daughter and he sees what's happening with David, he takes his daughter back. When things are, are, are threatened to be robbed from him, he, he lashes out. When his life is in danger, he desperately clutches onto his life. He's doing the exact opposite. And so when you're going through the stressful kind of situations that Chrysostom went through, David went through, Saul went through, the depth of your Christianity is tested. See, courage is not the absence of fear. That's a misnomer. Courage is doing the right thing despite fear because you have faith in God. Okay? And, and that's the kind of character we want to develop in our children's lives. Saul's backslidden condition canceled his ability to face fear as he should. Okay, let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that he, you know, he tried to return to God. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Saul had consistently rejected God's um, guidance in the past, but suddenly when things get bad, oh Lord, could you please bail me out? That's a foxhole kind of Christianity, and our relationship with God simply does not work that way. Uh, well, one commentator said this, he made his bed, but he didn't want to sleep in it. And we live in a society that seems to have no understanding of the relationship between our actions, making our bed, and the consequences of those actions, sleeping in that bed. Okay? Now, of course, there's forgiveness, but there are still the laws of harvest. There is forgiveness for sexual sin, but Romans says you're still going to bear the consequences in your flesh. There is forgiveness for a nation that is violating God's economic laws, but it might take an entire generation to recover from the rebellion that our nation is engaging in. You know, there's forgiveness for the, you know, a father who is abusive to his children or for, you know, a mother who's maybe a drunkard. But you can't overnight erase the psychological harm and the scarring that happens to the children. Why? Because they've been investing bad seeds, sowing bad seeds into their children. They're going to get a harvest. Now, praise the Lord. He many times does reduce the amount of harvest that comes out. He never eliminates the harvest, though. And uh, it, it is just uh, ridiculous to think that there will not be a harvest. Uh, ben and I watched a movie called Warrior with clear play, okay? Uh, and uh, wow, that movie, I thought, illustrated so well the nasty consequences that come from sin and that they're not done, oh, undone overnight. And um, yet there are too many parents like Saul, they only think about the consequences when the consequences hit them. Saul had killed the prophets. So why in the world would God speak to him through prophets? Saul had tried to kill all of the priests. Why would he speak to them through the priests? The one priest who escaped ran to David with the Urim, and Saul must not have realized that because he inquired. He says, somebody go to the tabernacle and get the Urim out, inquire of the Lord what I should do. And they go, I don't know where the Urim is. It's disappeared. It's not there. He didn't, all he has is nightmares. He didn't have dreams that are giving the Lord's guidance to him. And it was stupid of him to think that God would guide him without repentance. 
Okay? Christianity is just as stupid as Saul when it violates God's laws and thinks that it can escape from the consequences of such rebellion. Here's what the New Testament tells us. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Brothers and sisters, that is said in the age of grace. People have a, such a misconception about grace, they think, ah, it's just going to do away with all the consequences of the laws of harvest. It does not. It does not. There is forgiveness, but there are still consequences of our actions. And this was lived out in the life of professing believer Saul in this book, and it will be lived out in the life of David in 2 Samuel, even though he was a man after God's own heart. Boy, did he sow the bad seeds and the bad harvest of some of the things that he does later. Now, in conclusion, what I want to do is I want to pull together just three more thoughts from this passage. Bear with me, because I just cannot leave this passage without giving three more thoughts. And uh, the, the first one relates to the circumstances. If you look at verse 1, you'll see the expression there, now it happened. And from our 21st century perspective, we, we tend to treat that as, okay, it's just, it's just chance, it's, it, it, it's happened, it's random. No, it's the exact opposite. And in the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, it's a long name and an even longer book, it's a series of volumes that just deals with the meaning of every Hebrew term in the Old Testament, marvelous book. But in that dictionary, it points out that this word is at the root of God's name Yahweh, and it speaks not of random occurrences, but of providential historical sequence. And Genesis 1 defines for us how God wants us to understand this term. It says, God spoke, and it happened. There's the Hebrew term. God spoke again, and it happened. And it does that all through the book. And the dictionary says this about this pattern. This intentional pattern echoes the affirmation by the psalmist that what Yahweh commands and brings to pass perfectly correspond and then it cites Isaiah 14, verse 24, where God says, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Now, what does all that mean? It means the circumstances in this chapter were all orchestrated by God. They were not accidental. They were all planned out. God brought those providences together to expose sin to elevate David, to prepare Israel to fully appreciate uh, his grace and to appreciate David and to appreciate God's law and to appreciate what God is doing in their lives. They would not have done it. It would not have been good if David had been elevated prior uh, to, well, for 2 Samuel, actually, because Israel would not have been ready and actually David himself would not have been ready. Now, I'm convinced that Psalm 69 was written three days after this uh, during the first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 30. And there's a lot of internal uh, evidence uh, of that. But the cities of uh, Judah were devastated by the Philistines. The Amalekites had come by that time. They had captured the town of Ziklag. They had taken off all of the women, all of the children, all of the substance. David and his men come back and everything's gone. And they are heartbroken. The men are ready to stone David. This is a dark time for David. It's just a terrible time uh, for David. And yet, from hindsight, uh, we see that uh, God 
had prepared them to go through this so that they would far more appreciate uh, uh, what he was bringing out and be prepared to say, look, we're not going to put up with uh, anything but God's law anymore because we see the results of ditching God's law that Saul had, had brought. In the midst of that psalm of lamentation, David catches a glimpse of that and he says this, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess them. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now I think that is such a wonderful, beautiful statement of faith concerning his future kingship, which God had promised, and the rebuilding of the cities of Judah. They were in a far worse state than we are here in America. But it was only after this devastating judgment on Judah that Judah would be in a position to appreciate God and his law. Uh, there is an expression that says blank happens you've all heard it and i say no things don't just happen things don't just happen they are providentially controlled by god so that you are never in a position where you have to sin where you're in a box where you're trapped god controls your circumstances where you are able to bear it which means saul did not have to sin he didn't have to go to the medium in uh, endor uh, David did not have to sin. Don't ever look at your circumstances fatalistically. God is orchestrating them all together for your good. No matter how the elections turn out in America, God is moving America forward for the judgment of Satan, for the discipline of his people, which means for their good, and ultimately for God's glory. And I think we have to have absolute confidence in that. Modern history looks almost as chaotic and backwards as this chapter looks. And we think, what in the world is God doing here? He is at work in those circumstances. You can be absolutely confident of that. Now, it takes eyes of faith to look at circumstances that look chaotic and say, Lord, you're in total control, just like David did in the Psalms. Second, Think of the men. Think of the players in this drama. David, Achish, and Saul. Each one was quite different, and yet each one played a critical role in making sure that David survived, that he grew in sanctification, he grew in his leadership, he was prepared, and the kingship would be established for him. And so here's the question that I have. Does God control the God-hating leaders in America? And I say, absolutely. Yes, he does. He controls them just as much today as he controlled Achish back then. You see, Achish, <laughs> Achish was being used by God. He didn't know it. He thought he was using David. But God was the one who was using Achish. And here's how I word it. Self-serving Achish ended up serving God's purposes and losing. Self-serving Saul ended up serving God's purposes and losing. God-serving David ended up serving God's purposes and winning, which means to me everybody serves God's purposes. Some people do it willingly, and some people do it all the time fighting against God. And it's so much easier when you willingly serve God's purposes and you end up uh, as the winner. And um, what I learned from this, I think we, we really need to submit, submit to God's purposes and uh, see that he is orchestrating all of life to test us. He tests our character, he tests our vision, he tests our leadership, our faith. 
And to the degree that we pass the test that he brings into our lives, to that degree he ushers us into greater responsibilities and greater blessings. You know, if you want your borders to be expanded financially and in every other way, say, Lord, help me to respond <coughs> by faith to the things that you're giving to me today. God trusted David now to be the king of Judah. Why? Because he has so consistently been living uh, by faith, uh, despite uh, the difficulties that he was facing. It's a call to faith to believe what God says about the players in America, whether those players are believers or unbelievers. It really does not matter. And, of course, the last player in this drama is God himself. Verse 6 shows that God is sovereign and that he cannot be manipulated. He doesn't give guidance to rebels who want to continue to rebel. Okay, he doesn't bless disobedience. His love does not sweep sin under a carpet. His grace is not an antinomian grace that undermines his purposes. No. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, God cannot deny himself. That means God cannot contradict his own being, his own attributes. It's impossible for God to ever not be sovereign. It's impossible for him to uh, ever not be uh, holy. And so God is sovereign in his love, his grace, his providence, and every expression of his attributes. God is holy in his love, his grace, and every expression of his attributes. He cannot deny himself, you, and, and you cannot fight a sovereign God. Now, here's the cool thing that David learned. You don't need to fight a sovereign God when you realize that he's working all things together for your good, even the things that seem so chaotic and so messed up and so hurtful. And so it didn't look like God was working together for uh, uh, David's good in this chapter, but by faith, David believed it. And that's my admonition for you this morning. Live by faith, even when life seems the exact opposite of what God's Word says that it is. You believe God. Let, man, uh, let God be true and every man a liar. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the illustrations of people living by faith even in the most chaotic of times. And I pray that You would teach us to live by faith as well. Uh, help us to not be fooled and uh, buffaloed by... Uh, the appearances that uh, are out there in the world that really are tests of our faith. But Father, may we live by your word, by faith in you and your good purposes for us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.